This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike, 4.0, International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number eight, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about intentional torts. So there are seven traditional intentional torts. Battery, assault, false imprisonment, Intentional infliction of emotional distress, trespass to land, trespass to chattels, and conversion. The intentional torts are the most basic tort causes of action, and most of the doctrine of intentional torts predates the development of negligence. Because of this, many torts courses start with intentional torts. Whether you are starting to listen to these lectures here, or whether you studied the preceding lectures first, it is helpful to take a moment here to compare intentional torts to accidental torts. The intent damages trade-off. When it comes to the accidental torts, such as negligence, it is no defense for the defendant to say, I didn't mean to do it. The law can hold a person responsible for loss, even without intent. But the accidental torts require, as a part of the prima facie case, that the plaintiff show an actual injury, physical damage to the plaintiff's person or property. In contrast, the intentional torts do not require proof of physical injury or damage. So, for example, intentionally spitting on someone qualifies as the tort of battery, even if there is no injury. At the broadest level, considering both intentional and accidental torts together, there is a sense in which we can think of the defendant's intent as an alternative to the existence of damages. If the defendant intended to invade your legally protected interests in your body or property, then you may be able to recover regardless of whether actual harm has been suffered. That's intentional torts. On the other hand, if you have actually been hurt, then you may be able to recover regardless of whether the defendant intended any harm or offense. So when we look at the intentional torts and the accidental torts together, Tort law seems to take the stance that unless you've been hurt, 
or unless the defendant acted with bad intent. You should not bring your grievance to court. Another point of contrast between the intentional torts and the accidental torts is how the doctrine is structured. For accidents, there is really just one big cause of action, negligence, which takes care of the vast majority of claims arising from accidents. The other causes of action, strict liability, products liability, and informed consent actions, could be categorized as modifications of negligence that are relevant in limited circumstances. By contrast, in intentional torts, we have seven specific intentional torts. We can make some other additional generalizations. While negligence is broad and flexible, the intentional torts tend towards the narrow and rigid. Correspondingly, while the doctrine of negligence is complex and its contours fuzzy, intentional torts doctrine is comparatively simple with harder, more well-defined edges. Take, for instance, the cause of action for battery. The elements are one, inaction, that is two, intentional, and which results in three, harmful or offensive, four, touching of the plaintiff. Those elements are mostly self-explanatory. There are a few clarifications that will have to be made. For instance, does hitting someone with a thrown object count as a touching? It does. But such questions are relatively straightforward, and they have relatively straightforward answers. By contrast, the first element of the negligence cause of action is that the defendant owed the plaintiff a duty of care. That is not self-explanatory at all. Understanding what it means requires a lot of work. This is not to say that there are no difficult cases in intentional torts. There are, of course, hard cases on the margins, and novel facts can pose challenges to established doctrine. But by and large, the intentional torts are generally about applying well-formed rules, not about balancing factors or making policy choices. The bottom line is that moving between accidental torts and the intentional torts requires a little bit of a mental adjustment. So if you're starting out with intentional torts, don't expect the same degree of rule intensiveness when you move to negligence. And if you are arriving here after studying negligence, you can look forward to legal questions that tend more to have a right answer. Now moving to an overview of the intentional torts. First are the four personal intentional torts. That is battery, assault, false imprisonment, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. The most basic of these is battery. Battery is the intentional touching of the plaintiff in a harmful or offensive way. The concept of touching is quite broad. It would include, for instance, poisoning the plaintiff's meal. But in keeping with the theme of the intentional torts, no actual harm need be done. A strong plaintiff, for instance, might not be harmed at all by a punch thrown by a weak defendant. 
Regardless, a punch is harmful or offensive, even if no harm results. So a punch is an actionable battery. Next is assault. Assault is the intentional creation of an immediate apprehension of a harmful or offensive touching. That is to say, an assault is the apprehension of an oncoming battery. Throwing a punch and missing is an assault. The third intentional tort is false imprisonment, which is the intentional confinement of the plaintiff to a bounded area by force, threat of force, or improper assertion of legal authority. Locking the plaintiff in the cellar would count. So would brandishing a firearm and saying, move and I shoot. False imprisonment is a civil cause of action that is analogous to, though not completely overlapping with, the crime of kidnapping. The last personal intentional tort is intentional infliction of emotional distress, often abbreviated IIED, and sometimes known by its shorter name, outrage. This tort results when the defendant intentionally engages in outrageous conduct that causes the plaintiff severe mental distress. The key is that the action has to be truly outrageous. Telling someone that a close family member is dead, when that's not true, would likely qualify. Teasing or insulting someone, however, is usually not enough. Also, the mental distress suffered by the plaintiff must be severe. The remaining three intentional torts are trespass to land, trespass to chattels, and conversion, all of which involve invasions of rights over tangible property. The tort of trespass to land is the intentional tort that applies to invasions of interests in real property, which includes land and things attached to the land such as trees, buildings, improvements, and fixtures. An action for trespass to land requires an intentional act to invade someone's real property. Walking across someone else's land, or even putting a foot on it, satisfies the elements. The invasion can be momentary and does not need to do any damage to be actionable. The remaining two intentional torts are for invasions of interests in chattels. Chattels are the movable kind of property, and they include any item of tangible property that is not part of real property. Cars, computers, clothing, and animals are all examples of chattels. The tort of trespass to chattels requires an intentional action that substantially interferes with a plaintiff's chattel. What counts as interfering is a little tricky. The law here is stricter than it is with trespass to land. With trespass to land, merely putting a foot on the plaintiff's land creates liability. The analogous is not true for trespass to chattels. Merely running up and touching the plaintiff's chattel does not count. Making a substantial use of the plaintiff's chattels does count as interference, as does depriving the plaintiff of the opportunity to use them. 
damage where it occurs always counts as interference. The last intentional tort is conversion. An alternative to trespass to chattels, the tort of conversion is an intentional interference with the plaintiff's chattel that is so severe that it warrants a forced sale of the chattel to the defendant. Conversion is essentially trespass to chattels, but with a heightened threshold that triggers a more powerful remedy. Now that we have a sketch of the intentional torts and understand their relation to negligence and other torts, it is helpful to look a little more closely at the concept of intent itself. In general, intent means that the defendant either acts with the purpose or goal of bringing about a certain consequence, or at least does so with substantial certainty that the consequence will occur. The substantial certainty idea expands the concept of intent beyond the defendant's goals. Suppose a defendant testifies in court, I didn't really want to shoot the plaintiff. What I wanted to do was shoot the person next to the plaintiff. So yes, I knew the plaintiff could get shot, but that wasn't my goal. Here the defendant's testimony establishes the requisite intent, since the defendant acted with substantial certainty. It doesn't matter that shooting the plaintiff wasn't the goal. Beyond the fundamentals, the concept of intent begins to diverge among the various intentional torts. We said that intent means that the plaintiff acted purposely or with substantial certainty of producing a certain consequence. What consequence must be intended depends on the tort. With battery, for instance, the defendant generally must intend to commit a battery. For trespass to land, the defendant does not need to intend to trespass at all. The defendant only needs to intend the action that causes the trespass. So the intent to walk a certain path, even if undertaken in the earnest attempt to stay off the defendant's property, will satisfy the intent requirement of trespass to land. That is, the intent to put one foot in front of the other is intent enough, even if it was a genuine mistake to cross the property line. By contrast, the intent to raise your arms is not requisite intent for battery if you didn't think doing so would inflict a harmful or offensive touching on anyone. Strangely, there is one intentional tort, intentional infliction of emotional distress, that, despite the word intentional in its name, requires only proof that the defendant acted with recklessness. This may be one reason many people prefer the name outrage for the tort. Our discussion of intent is not complete without mention of the plaintiff-friendly doctrine of transferred intent. Where it applies, the doctrine of transferred intent allows the intent required by one intentional tort claim to be satisfied by showing the defendant's intent to commit a different intentional tort. Intent is said to be able to transfer from tort to tort or from person to person. 
or even between torts and persons at the same time. The concept is best explained with an example. If a defendant intends to hit person A with a baseball, but does so that it almost hits person B's head, then the tortious intent to inflict a battery on person A can be transferred to person B for an assault claim. In this case, the intent transfers both from battery to assault and from person A to person B. Under the most traditional view of transferred intent, intent can transfer among persons and among any of the torts of battery, assault, false imprisonment, trespass to land, and trespass to chattels. Thus, acting with the purpose of trespassing on land could count as the requisite intent for a battery. Many courts today, however, apply transferred intent more narrowly, restricting tort-to-tort transfer to assault and battery only. One last thing to point out is that intent is an issue for the jury. You may have wondered, how can you truly know what another person intended? In a metaphysical sense, perhaps there is no way to truly know the subjective mental experience of another person. But a jury's job isn't to engage in metaphysics. A jury decides based on the preponderance of the evidence whether the defendant acted with the requisite intent. The defendant might testify under oath that she or he did not intend the tortious action, but the jury can choose to disbelieve the defendant and decide, looking reasonably at the circumstances, that the defendant, in fact, did act with intent. That might not count as proof for a philosopher, but it counts as proof in a courtroom. The main takeaway should be that you cannot guess at what intent means based on your common understanding of the word intent. You will need to carefully apply the specific rules for each intentional tort. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.